Welcome to the Emotional Curriculum with me, Dr. Sarah Taylor-Whiteway. When was the last time someone asked you about something you do well, or you asked someone else about something they do well? Thinking about our strengths is maybe something that doesn't come naturally to us in our lives and at school. In this episode, we talk to Dr. Jeff James, a solution-focused coach, about the tendency for schools to use a conditioning approach to behaviour management, with reward and punishment at the heart of this. He offers an alternative to this, solution-focused approaches. We talk about what this is and how this can be used in schools and classrooms. Welcome to the Emotional Curriculum. Thank you very much. So I wanted to just start by asking you what has been your journey to get to where you are today? I came into uh, teaching when I was uh, 45 about and before then I've worked for a long time with adults with uh, learning disabilities and then I came into teaching and the first full-time job I got was in a, a special school for children with emotional behavioural difficulties. But I didn't have any training on how to work with children who were, had got the EBD, you know, label attached to them. And which I and there was no training offered when I, when I took the job. I did ask about it and there was no training offered. So I thought I'd do, um, so I couldn't read, I didn't find anything to read, so I thought I'd do an MA. So I signed up for an Open University MA that took me three years. It was when I then I worked in that school for about two years and uh, just about two and a half years. And at that then I transferred to a children's services um, as a as a, a specialist support teacher. And I started my Ph.D. just before I finished my M.A. because I hadn't got what I wanted, which was this connection of emotional curriculum. I'm an educator and I wanted to work in an educational way. So my thesis is called um, it's called finding a pedagogy. So that kind of explains it, doesn't it? Really, that's what I was looking for. I was teaching, working in a pupil referral unit at the time, and I I looked at the history of the of the PRU to kind of give me some ground as to where we were at the time. In two thousand and one. I came across solution-focused brief therapy in a one-day training. So your practice now is based around solution-focused approaches. What was the impact of that training on your work then? So I was working uh, 50% in the PRU and 50% specialist support. And I'd had a referral from a boy in who was 10, who was right on the edge of being permanently excluded. He'd witnessed a very violent event uh, when he was six. And there was an implication that this event was causing his quite violent behaviour in school. And I'd see when I was working in the PRU, I'd witnessed a um, actually an Ed site coming in to do um, an assessment with a child. And this boy had been effectively re-traumatised by the questioning that was going on. You know, I saw the process and I thought, I don't want to be doing something like that. So time, this training came up in solution focused brief therapy and then I, I realized that was it that's what I needed 
So I bought um, uh, Yasmin Ajmal's book, who was working in brief at the time, and I had the book on my knee and the mum and the child sitting in the same room as me. And I effectively used the structure off the book. And then and that and it went well. I mean, he wasn't excluded. His behavior, you know, was OK. He was back on the playground playing football and he went to secondary school. And, you know, and that was that was quite a big shock for me, really, because, you know, the working with children right on the edge of permanent exclusion meant that everybody done everything and nothing worked. So it's like, oh, like no pressure really is a. I've used a solution-focused um, approach uh, really since then, since that time. And I've, what I've tried to do is to put it in as many places as possible to see if it could stand up, really. It seemed to me very robust. And I got these results, like this child who would have been, could have been permanently excluded and wasn't. And then that happened, you know, repeatedly. Um, and uh, so I wanted to try, you know, if this approach would work in other kind of contexts, really. So you've come across this approach that's working really well for you. What else did you do with it? Where did you take it? So I was seconded to um, CAMS for four years, 50%. So I worked in CAMS with the same children who'd been referred to children's services effectively. So working in a team of a, of a um, clinical psychologist and a psychiatrist and a, maybe another therapist, something like that, doing straightforward solution-focused brief therapy. And that worked very well. That seemed to go very well. And I was seconded to a residential team about the children in care and going into care. Uh, the organisational part of the children's services, I had, a, I had a while doing that. And it seemed to be wherever I went with it, it, it stood up. So it gave me a lot of confidence. So you're really describing using an evidence-based approach where you're getting really positive outcomes. But it's an approach we don't see in schools that often. And why do you think schools haven't adopted this? Where I've got to with this, really, I think the um, the general approach that's taken in schools, which is promoted by the government, is based on a hundred year old psychology. And it, it leaves out all of the recent work, the neuroscience, the neurobiology and even even Bowlby and relationship and attachment. And it leaves all that out and just goes back to something which was. Um, which was, I mean, experimental psychologists doing their best to try and beginning, begin to find out what learning is, really. And this seems to have jumped into schools now pretty well unchanged. So that we've got, we've got conditioning, straightforward operant conditioning happening in schools. And it's a warped form of something which is very old. And as a scientist, I'm really interested in the use of evidence. And it's, as it seems like current evidence is really being left out, I think, in what the practice is. So there's there's one sort of line pushed by government and the government advisor that some children behave for no reason at all. So that what you can do with them is you can apply conditioning levers on them and then drive their behavior, you know, to one way or another. And that seems like mm, that's a big statement to make because what we know now clearly is that of course, all behavior ha has a reason that people only behave, you know, behavior only appears because it's a, it's a biological organism doing its best to stay safe and stay alive. So if schools started taking on board the research that's out there at the moment, what would be the take-home messages that they would be picking up? You know, in a school, you can't directly affect what happens to a child before they're born and in the very early years, but you can directly do something about the stresses that children are under at the time. That's what it feels like. And the, and the current 
um, you know, the current sort of thinking and writing about trauma and distress is that by um, establishing the right kind of relationship and looking in the right direction, you can ameliorate stress and you can even maybe um, start doing something about the long-term effects of trauma. That's what I, that's what it feels like. Yeah, and you've raised a really interesting point about, I think, educational practice not moving on. Um, I think that's so pertinent because, as you say, all the neuropsychology and neurobiology studies that are coming out at the moment are kind of suggesting that we need to put relationships and empathy at the heart of our, our teaching in our schools to make a difference for all children. And so with that in mind, what do you think... Um, is going to be the impact of schools taking this more conditioning approach to behaviour management and ignoring maybe more of the relational research that's out there? Those children who are already distressed or have high anxiety as a regular thing, like who are children who are higher on the autistic spectrum, for example, where they're already already kind of anxious and, and ready to jump, that when the increased pressure comes, they, they respond to it in a different way to children who are very settled and calm and and I'm just giving them a slight raised eyebrow and then, you know, things things are guided back into shape. And that's where um, schools can do something active, proactive for children's mental health because I believe that... Um, Children are effect, can be effectively be re-traumatized by put, put it, being put under considerable, like you know, social stress. Uh, where what the school's trying to do is to shape their behaviour, but the school child's responding to it by being under increasing stress, and then that stress emerges as either fight, flight behaviour, or freeze, or those those things. And when you look at it like that, it's all you can see it. It's you can anticipate it. You can see what's going to happen. So you put a child who's already stressed under more stress and they're going to do something that you don't really want. Yeah. And do you think there's a tendency for teachers to feel that children need to be, or young children need to be punished? Do you think that comes from their own emotions towards when the child has done something wrong? That they feel there needs to be a punishment now because I'm feeling stressed by it? I think, I think, of course, because they're, they're everybody, you know, these, these are humans in a room, aren't they? So... If you're if you're the teacher waking up in the morning hoping for the best day, and you've planned really carefully, and then things go severely off the rails because something's happening in the classroom, and there's a child that you know you've got 26 children in the room, one of them's not doing what you want, and then there's a little cloud around them of two or three others who are going in the same direction, and of course there's an enormous feeling of disappointment. And having been the teacher in that situation. Um, I mean, I can remember if I think I can remember being in that classroom in the special school and at one point turning away from the children who were ricocheting around the room, just looking at the board and then just breathing. So I spent, you know, like 30 seconds doing doing square breathing just to get centre myself again. And then, right, am I ready? And then turn around and get back to trying to do that. So there's definitely that element in it that there are people involved. So bearing evidence in mind, what is the scientific basis of solution-focused approaches? This goes into the heart of neuro, you know, neuro thinking, really, where there, is, where there are dormant neural maps, the success map, and a dominant failure map, and the failure map keeps lighting up. 
And what solution-focused um, brief therapy and coaching does, it, it, it stops the, the failure map from firing. And if you block it, it allows the other map to come up. Okay, and do you have an example of what that looks like in practicality? I've just done some training for a group of staff who are going to be using solution-focused coaching in school. And now I spoke to the deputy head the day before yesterday, and she said there'd been a child, a year six boy, who's very aggressive and very fighty and causes lots of problems. And after a big event, like a sustained event in school where things had gone wrong, she, he, he sat down with one of the people who'd done the training with me, and she asked him, the most sort of non-intuitive question, really. She said, okay, tell me what's gone well today. And she said he was so surprised by being asked that. And she found it so, so odd to be asking that question because without the trainee, she would never have asked that. She would have been looking into the problem. So what went wrong? Why did you do that? You know, what are you going to do different next time? When she asked him about what went well, when he sort of got over his surprise, he told her that during that day he'd done... I think done some more more writing than he'd done before, ever done before, something like that. And um, and she said, well, look out for that then. Look out for, your, you know, what's going well for you. She spoke to, or he came up to her the next day and told her that he was doing more of that, doing more writing. And what what to me, what happens is that when the child feels, this is to do with um, flow theory, that when a child, when a person feels competent in one part of their life, it spills out across their life because we don't we're not in compartments so this child isn't in like fighting children in the playground bit of his brain and doing his english writing bit of his brain when he feels competent when he feels in flow in one part of his life that lifts him his whole sense of self-esteem because now he's a competent person rather than being an incompetent person so the kind of problem-based approaches that schools tend to be using more traditionally, they're lighting up and making active this part of the brain that makes a person feel like they've got difficulties finding things hard. And a solution approach would um, activate a bit of the brain that makes the person feel successful. And then, like you said, that kind of spills into other areas and the whole of their life gen tends to feel more successful. Right. And when I'm doing the, doing the training, I talk about you know, if you do something that goes well for you and now somebody asks you to talk about it, you get what I, I just call it the chocolate effect. That thing that, you know, makes you feel good about yourself, whatever that is, without talking about hormones and, you know, getting too detailed. Because we all know what that what that feels yeah. like. And that that, I, that conversely, if somebody asks you something about something that's gone wrong and you do a lot of talking about that, you get the opposite effect and your stress level rises. You start to re-experience the stress that you did before and they... The, the research into trauma, that what's, I think one thing that's really interesting about it is, or there are lots of things that are interesting, but one thing is that when people go back into trauma in memory, when you look at what's happening in their brain, they're actually experiencing the trauma at the time. So it's not like they're going there remembering being distressed. They are as distressed as they were at the time, right now in the present. Mm -hmm. Then you haven't got a child that you can teach anything to because the higher, you know, the the administrative part of the brain has gone offline isn't it if the stress level is high this child isn't a bad child who's just kicked the stuffing out of the classroom it's a child who's gone into a part of their protective self where they're either going to fight or fly and this one does a lot of fighting so and then it comes out that's what it looks like but if you ask a question if you ask the question about 
okay, so here we are at the end of the day, you know, it's coming towards going home time. Tell me what went well today. That switches him into a different part of his thinking, doesn't it? So, so even in the middle of um, things going wrong, there's something going right. And that's a principle in solutions-focused thinking is that every problem's got a crack in it. As Leonard Cohen's, there's a Leonard Cohen line, isn't it? Every problem's got a crack, that's where the light gets in. And there's an idea that in solutions-focused thinking that no problems are perfect. They, they're always, they've always got a weakness. And the weakness is when things go well, when things are going well. And you've, you've kind of mentioned some of the solution-focused questions that a teacher might ask. Um, so could you give a bit of an overview of what a solution-focused conversation might look like with a child um, in contrast to a problem-focused one? In a solution-focused conversation, the aim of what you're doing is to light up success and competence um, and, and to block what's the opposite of that. So, and so this isn't about being problem um, averse because of course problems happen and sometimes people want to talk about them, but it's about the, 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 the idea, is an idea in solution-focused thinking that the problem doesn't necessarily contain the solution. So that by talking about the problem, it might, if the solution is not contained in the problem, then what's the point of talking about the problem? So the principle is don't go looking for it where it isn't. Go looking for the solution where it is. And what do staff or teachers have to think about when they're trying to engage a child in this process? Now, in the room, power balance is crucial because if children, what you're aiming to do is allow children to express their agency. Agency is where you have the ability to shape the world around you. So you've got some degree of control and some degree of uh, cooperation, something like that. So it's not somebody telling you what you must do and then you having to do it, which is more of the reward and punishment part. It's it's knowing that the agency of the child is what's going to lead them into to their to recovering their solution. So when I start, I'm really careful about how we sit. I never sit in a higher chair. If they're very small children, I'll always sit at the child's level or low on the child's level. I I don't do anything when we start. I'm just quiet. I don't have, I haven't got a plan really. So I often get told, oh, she won't she won't she won't talk to you because she doesn't talk to anybody. Or no, he's not a child who talks to people. It, the next question is, what's your best thing? What do you like doing? And what about those students and children who just can't answer that question, who can't think of their best thing or what interests them? Quite often the child will say, I don't know, because they're half of the, you know, they're partly thinking they're in trouble and this is weird. What's going on here is a bit weird. So then I'll say, I don't mean like a big deal. I mean, like it could be a really small best thing, but it could be something which is just a tiny little bit good. And when you when you do that thing, that's a little bit good. OK, what might that be? And that that'll that'll get an answer like that. And if the child then says, oh, I don't know. And I'll say, and this is a right an amazing question, I'll say, well, suppose you did know. Suppose you did know what was something you like doing. What would that be? And when you take it from being real hard-edged, like, so what's your best thing, to being imaginative in imagination, children will always answer that because they'll have a think about it. They'll think, well, if it was, if I, if I did think about my best thing and I did have a best thing, it would be, and then they'll tell you like that. But once you've got that, you've got a conversation about competence. And so whatever they talk about, then you can start to be, the conversation is about, all oh, right, so the fact that you know 
every the 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 date of manufacture of every bus in the bus station and i can say so something about you i think you must have a you know a pretty good memory to remember all the buses in the bus station is that true about you mm, yeah i think it is. oh yeah it is and then we go on from there so i'm reflecting strengths back to the child out of this conversation which is giving them the chocolate effect because it's something that they love doing and that gives you a ground to go on to the other steps of the solution focused structure itself yeah and that example you gave i guess shows how hard sometimes we have to work to light up that neural network of success and um you know because like you say often they'll say i don't know and you have to you know that at that point maybe often we give up and say okay fine let's talk about the problem because it's easier for both of us exactly and it's really difficult not to say anything because in school, all the adults in school are used to advising children and telling them what they could do next. So when a child says, I don't know, you know, you're saying, what's your best thing? And they say, I don't know. And they're saying, well, I saw you playing in the playground with some other children. Supposing it was that, you know, is it that playing ball? And of course it won't be. The chances are it won't be that because the child will be thinking about something else. And that is really difficult to do. And you have to control yourself. That's what inquiry is about, that you have to hold throttle yourself back, really, so you don't fill in the gaps. And do you find with those questions and with the question example you gave, that is, imagine you did know what you were good at, and with the waiting, do you find children always get to something? Yes. And you said about being difficult to do. I feel the same thing. I think I, I went, um, I worked with one child and he, he was... Um, I think he was about nine, I think. And um, where we were talking, he had a clock over his head in a, in a resources room in a primary school. And I asked him a question and then waited. And it took him two minutes to answer me, which is a really long time, isn't it? If you and I sat and looked at each other for two minutes, that's a very long time with nothing. So when you say, does it always produce something? I think it does if you're, if you're, if you're attuned to what the other person's doing. Each element is going to work on its own like a lever. It's that bound together, this whole structure about thinking about the agency of the child just tells you where to go. Slow down, speed up, stop, do something different, walk around the room for a bit. You know, with very young children, they often play with toys at the same time. Well, that's a good thing to do. Why not do that? You know, if that's I'm not going to say come over here and sit down. If that's what the what the room feels like, then to do the same thing. That's what I'd say. So what you're really speaking about there is agency, letting the child lead that session. And I guess I'm thinking, how often do we do that in schools? Um, how often do we really let the child take control of that session and attune to what they need in that time and not what we're pressured to make the child do in that time? I think the word attunement, I think there's a, there is a lot of language around this area where people who want a more rigid discipline system tend to think it's weak, tend to think there's a weakness about it. The fact that we communicate more rapidly and automatically emotionally before we do cognitively, what the behaviour management systems in schools do, they rely entirely on cognitive effect. So, so when the child goes into isolation, they're supposed to reflect on what's gone on, come up with the answer. And then so you're asking them to be metacognitive their emotional elephants already gone off in the wrong direction because you've taken them away from the connection of their peer group in class they've had the shame of walking all those kind of things that happen and that the understanding that there's actually nothing you can do about the or this or fast automatic 
approximate connection that happens long before we talk to each other, then you need to be paying attention to that because it happens so quickly and it's within our control to do something about it. Because if we if we view the other person as doing their best, that gives a different automatic stress response than if we think they're doing their worst. You mentioned there the elephant, and that's kind of the idea that sometimes um, talked about, which is of the elephant and the rider. And the elephant is kind of more of our automatic response system, so our emotions or our facial expressions that we aren't necessarily controlling. And our the rider is the cognitive part of our brain that's thinking through and reasoning. Could you explain a little bit more about that? The elephant is the emotional, um, social brain is very powerful and and also um, doesn't think a lot. It just acts so that if the elephant goes off in the wrong direction in down the distress stress path to try and pull it around that the the rider is the cognitive brain, you know, at sort of administering it, that sitting on top of it, it's going to be impossible to pull it around and get it to go somewhere else because it's so powerful. So it's really important to get it going off in the right direction, the direction you want, and then ha- and then elephant and rider are, are working along together. And so the part, the elephant part first, might not even be talking or asking questions. It's just having that relationship there and being there and and moderating your own emotions in response to the emotions of the child. Yes, it is. It's about, and it's about you know to sort of sum it up. It's about seeing people as doing their best even when it doesn't look like it so that's true about you and about the other person so even though this child looks as if they've been doing their worst in the middle of it they've been doing their best and it's all gone wrong that's what you could see it like that and when you've got that in the center of yourself you approach the other person differently because you not you can ask a different question but you your facial muscles will be different your hearing's differently attuned your heart rate's different your breathing rate's different you know all those things all these autonomic this system lights up. And if you're stressed yourself, that communicates to the other person. Mm. So the elephant is much more subtle, what we're communicating really there, but it comes from a, us taking a different perspective on why the child is doing what they're doing. Yes, it does. And it's humans connecting with humans. So if you wanted teachers to take one thing or one idea from our conversation today um, to go away and talk about or think about or put into their practice, what would it be? I mean, as a teacher, a neuroteacher, you know, what teachers in general want is something practical to do. So it's about practical action, really. So what I would how I'd answer that is is to is to just look out for this idea about talking to the elephant. Just see when it's already happening. See when you do it already and then see what's the outcome of that, and then see what happens if you do a little bit more of it, I would say. So that's about about making a different assumption. When you see something going wrong, try and think about what's going right. So maybe ask the child what's going right. Do the elephant talk before you get into trying to sort it out. And we'll have more from Jeff in a special episode coming soon. In the meantime, thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about what we discussed, you can find the links in the podcast description. If you like the episode, then please do subscribe and leave a review. You can follow us on Twitter at emcurriculum and you can get in touch by emailing theemotionalcurriculum at gmail.com. See you soon.